Good to see you today as we continue um, in our study. As uh, many of you know, late last year, um, uh, the first installment of The Hobbit, a series of movies written based on the book uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien called The Hobbit. The first of three of these movies uh, came out. And they tell the story of this uh, halfling of Bilbo Baggins who discovers a ring that has uh, magical, mystical, uh, world-altering power. And uh, ultimately, Bilbo is going to hand this ring to his nephew Frodo. And Frodo, who is one of three Christ-like characters uh, in the Lord of the Rings, is going to ultimately lose his life trying to destroy this ring and the evil uh, that it represents. What uh, you may not know is that, uh, is that Tolkien himself uh, confined the critical events of The Lord of the Rings. It's this epic novel. He confined the events of The Lord of the Rings to a single year. And in spite of that, he wrote uh, the history that, that goes back for thousands and thousands of years. In other works that support this story, in the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales and in other things, he gave us genealogies. He gave us the histories of races of people. He invented languages for these people. The, the, the amount of work over 30 years that he did to give us the backdrop is staggering. He did this in part because the more context we have for that critical year the better we can appreciate what happened. But he also did that because that's what we find in the Bible. There is a sense in which the story that we focus on is not simply confined to the life of Christ, not simply confined to the three years of his public ministry. It really pivots around the Holy Week. And in specific, it pivots around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we are given history going back thousands and thousands of years. We are given genealogies. We are given prophecies. We are given all of this context so that we can better understand right, that everything is pointing either ahead to the death and resurrection of Christ or everything is pointing back to the death and resurrection of Christ. That is the hinge point of everything. Well, part of what points ahead to Christ's life and work, to his death and resurrection, are a series of prophecies. And in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we have the last prophecy that is given pointing ahead to the work God is going to do through the Messiah. And so, if you want to turn there, if you find Matthew 1 and back up one page, right, you will have the last words of the Old Testament. In the last book, the last chapter, the last words before there is 400 years of silence. The heavens go quiet. No prophets speak. No books are written. Radio silence. Just before that, we have these words. I'm going to read you all of Matthew chapter, or excuse me, all of Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord God Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. I have made uh, this point several times. It's worth repeating here. Uh, We're not very good at prophecy. It's not a genre we understand. We don't traffic in it. We don't really get it. Furthermore, the prophetic passages that we find in the Old Testament are much easier to understand after they have been fulfilled than they are beforehand. To read that prophecy and figure out what's going to happen is enormously difficult work that we're not good at. After it's been fulfilled, it's a little bit clearer. What the Jews understood from this passage is that the next step in God's plan, the thing that they were looking for, waiting for, the next next thing to happen would be the appearance of Elijah. He was their greatest prophet. Moses was the one associated with the law. Elijah was the premier prophet. He had stood at Mount Carmel and done battle with the, the prophets of Baal. He had redirected the entire nation of Israel. So later on, we'll see at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus meets with Moses, who represents the law, Elijah, who represents the prophets. He is a premier character in Old Testament history. And what we are told here, what they understood was, next up, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will return. And so, if you uh, attend... Uh, a Jewish Seder, a Passover Seder, then you know that one of the things that is done is that they set a place at the Seder for Elijah. And just before the meal happens, one of the kids will get up and go to the front door and open it and look out to see, is Elijah coming? The, The next step in God's plan to rescue us in his, in his redemptive work, the next step is Elijah. So this prophecy is given, this statement is made, and then silence. Nothing happens, no prophets speak, no angels appear, no word from God for 400 years. And the people wait, and they wait, and they wait, and some grow discouraged and tired and give up. Others continue to wait, and then finally, an angel appears to an old man, Zechariah, and he says, you and your wife are going to have a child, 
And this child is going to be the greatest prophet who's ever come. He is going to be the one who stands in the footsteps of Elijah, and he will quote out of Malachi 4. He said, this is about to happen, and that is the event we are going to read about and focus on in Luke this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to work through Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5 and going through verse 25. Luke 1, verses 5 through 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, remember, uh, as I said, uh, Luke carefully dates things, right? He wants, he, he doesn't say a long time ago this happened. He is, he is giving us historically accurate time frames. So we know that Herod was appointed to be the provincial king over Galilee, Syria, and Judea by Mark Anthony in 37 B.C., and he is going to reign for a good long time. Uh, he is an unbelievable uh, architect and builder. If you go to Israel, you are amazed at what Herod the Great builds. Absolutely stunning and unthinkable. Uh, he's also a sociopath, a wicked, cruel man, and there's a little bit of a play here. Luke is going to contrast Herod the Great, king of the Jews, with Jesus. And the point that gets made is Herod is neither great nor is he the king of the Jews. But um, we, we, get, we get Herod the Great referenced here two times at the very beginning of, of our passage. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. So, a number of things would have uh, quickly jumped off the page for any first century reader of this passage. First of all, Zechariah is a priest. Now, do not confuse being a priest with being the high priest. There were 18,000 priests in Israel. We will see later on, Zechariah and Elizabeth live in a small little village, probably a hundred people. So, he is a, the equivalent of a small town pastor. Right? When you're driving out in the country... And, and you see at this little intersection a tiny little church building. And maybe you go by on Sunday morning and there's like, you know, 22 cars that you count in the parking lot. Uh, so there's maybe 40 people there. That is Zechariah. He is in pastoring that church. That is his life. Small town pastor. We're also told that he is... Um, he and his wife are old, and they don't have any children. And this means pain and hardship. Infertility is, is always painful and difficult and, and, and crippling emotionally for many people. It was, it was that and a little bit more back then uh, for the woman in particular because she would bear all the blame. And it was not uncommon for a husband whose wife is not providing him in particular with sons 
to, uh, to abandon her. So there is a stigma attached to Elizabeth. There is shame uh, attached to her. And there is not just this pain, but there is the forecast of pain to come because your children were your uh, social security and 401k plans, right? As opposed to today, where children are um, an economic liability. Uh, we, don't, we don't think of them in that way unless we're writing tuition payments. Then occasionally that thought crosses our mind. But uh, as opposed to them being a, a, a bit of a drain today, they were an asset back then. You needed kids to take care of you when you couldn't take care of yourself. That was the plan. There was no other plan. So the fact that Elizabeth and Zechariah do not have any kids means pain and hardship. Additionally, we are told that they remain faithful, right? That they are blameless before God. They continue to love Him. They continue to serve Him. Many times, uh, when our prayers are not answered the way we want them to be answered, and I would just say our prayers are always answered. I mean, sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is not yet. When our prayers are answered, uh, not answered the way we want them to be answered, sometimes people get mad, they walk away from God, their, their heart grows hard. We, we don't get that impression of what's going on here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Reading on. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, so uh, there are 18,000 priests in Israel. They divide into 24 regiments of 750 priests each. And each regiment was assigned roughly two weeks out of the year to staff the temple, to be on hand in the temple. And during that week, they would uh, draw lots twice a day to see who was going to be assigned to go into the temple not the Holy of Holies, but into the temple and offer prayer and incense. So we have a few pictures of the temple. This is uh, what it would look like. Uh, then additionally, there's a picture here that shows you how big it is. Let's just remember, first temple's built by Solomon. It gets destroyed when Israel falls, 586 B.C. They rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. It's small. It's not very big. Herod the Great will then begin a 60-year building project with tens of thousands of people, and he will rebuild a temple that is massive in scale. So this is, this is going to take up 25% of the entire uh, enclosed area of Jerusalem. He is trying to court favor with the Jews, as he wants to be the loved king of the Jews. He is building this massive, massive building. The building has been going on for about 40 years uh, at this time. So it's not completed, but it's being worked on. And then the final uh, picture here shows inside the actual temple itself, there are a number of courts. And on the, the right, you see the far right middle is the Holy of Holies. This is where the high priest would go once a year. 
Just outside of that, it says nave here, uh, there's a curtain that separates these two things, uh, that separates this court, uh, or this little room, where the priest would go to offer incense. Um, th- this temple, right, this, or this veil is the veil that is going to be torn in two at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Because now uh, we have access to God the Father through God the Son. Uh, so the, the belief that Zechariah would have, the belief that the Jews would have, the belief that you see uh, demonstrated by Orthodox Jews today is that while God cannot be contained in a building, His manifest presence is especially located in the Holy of Holies. This is why today you see the Orthodox Uh, the Orthodox Jews lining up along the west wall, the west retaining wall of what's left of the temple, right? This is as close as anyone can get to God. That's the belief, okay? Now, again, we don't share that belief because we now understand that Jesus is the temple. The temple is the place where God and man intersect, Well, Jesus becomes the temple, and he claims that when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it, right? He wasn't talking about this huge building that Herod has been having tens of thousands of people work on for 60 years. He's talking about himself, and he's talking about his resurrection. Jesus is the temple, and the temple is destroyed in God's providence in 70 AD so that we get this and we move on. We can now come into the presence of God the Father through God the Son wherever we are. But that's not Zechariah's understanding. His understanding is that, that he now finally has been selected to go into this room and to offer incense to offer prayers, to get as close to God as he's ever going to get. This is a big deal. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. Okay, so once it happens, your name is withdrawn from the lottery, and you will not get to do this again. There are 750 priests that are rotating through each regiment, and, and so if you haven't been selected, then every day for those two weeks, morning and evening, someone would be selected to go into and offer these prayers and incense. The fact that Zechariah is an old man, and he has never gone in, is against the odds. And it would suggest, because the belief is that God is providential behind who gets selected, the belief is that, you know, Zechariah doesn't have a lot of favor with God. I mean, and the fact that his life is not working, right? He's a small town, clearly bivocational priest in this little village, and they don't have any kids. This, is, this has been a hardship, and he's never been able to go into the temple, You can just imagine the conversations that people would have about him. And now, finally, he is given that opportunity. And he goes into into the the room and he places incense. This is frankincense and myrrh onto, uh, onto the fire, onto the coals. And you see the smoke begin to rise up. And the understanding here is that that this smoke is going to carry... Our, our prayers up to God and both the incense and our prayers are a sweet aroma to God. We see that language used in the book of Psalms and the book of Revelation. So 
he goes in and he, he places the incense on the coals and he prays. Now, while this is happening, it says here that uh, the people were outside. Uh, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So everyone that has come with Zechariah, all the other 750 priests and their families and others are outside. They're kneeling down with their hands up in the air on this marble outside of, of this uh, courtyard. And they're praying for Zechariah and they're praying for, for Israel. And clearly part of their prayer is uh, don't let them take long because this is really painful. Uh, kneeling... <laughs> On the marble and keeping your hands up in the air, uh, you know, let's, let's, not, uh, let's not dally while you're in there, Zechariah. So, this is going on, and he is praying. Hey, let's just be sure we understand what's going on. He is finally in this court. He has finally been selected by God. He is as close to God as he's ever going to be. He is now praying. Undoubtedly, he's praying for the nation of Israel. Please, Father, get rid of the Romans. Right? We want our freedom. We want want you to, to send the Messiah to help restore us. And I pray also for my wife. Uh, Elizabeth, and I pray what, what she wants and I want most of all, send us a son. He's been praying this for decades. And now he's in the courtroom praying this again. And it says, verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. The silence is broken. 400 years of silence is now broken. And there is Zechariah standing in the presence of an angel. And he's frightened, right, because... As I've said, angels are not like Precious Moments figurines or like Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. They are are threatening and intimidating in some way. Perhaps it's their size. Perhaps it's because they are holy. And we are not. And in the presence of holiness, we immediately feel guilty and fall down. And, And so repeatedly, when God the Father speaks... When, when uh, a prophet speaks for God, when an angel shows up, the first things they're always saying is, fear not. Right? And I realize, by the way, that some of you are a little skeptical of this claim of angels. They're going to show up a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And you're going to see uh, that they play a pretty pivotal role as messengers of God and as, as protectors of God's people. And I want to encourage you... Uh, you, you, can, you can be skeptical, but, but take, but, but at least do the work, and at least understand this. Um, if you're skeptical of angels, you're skeptical of the wrong things. It, the, the idea that it, an all-powerful creator God could create other beings who are temporarily higher than we are to serve him as a messenger, to serve him in various ways, the idea that God could and would do this should not 
trip us up. If you want to be, uh, if you want to be skeptical, if you want to say, I, I cannot imagine that this would happen, then, then what you should be skeptical of is the incarnation itself. It's not that God would create another being. It's that God would, would humble himself and become part of his creation and die for us. That's what's unbelievable. Not that there might be angels. So there's an angel. It appears to Zechariah. And the angel says, as they all do, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back, will, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Here's this Malachi passage. He will go on in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Right? The silence is broken. An angel appears. And he says, Zechariah, Your prayers have been heard. Your prayers will be answered. Your wife is going to give birth to a son. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is going to be the most amazing, outstanding prophet of all time. He is is going to be the one who walks in the footsteps of Elijah. This is one who's not just going to bring you joy, but many thousands of people are going to rejoice. This is not just an answer to your prayer, it's an answer to their prayer, because he is the one that we have been waiting for. And, and, And this is going to be amazing. Elijah, today is your day. I am bringing you this news. It's the best news that you could get. So what's the right response to that report? The right response would be, you know, to scream hallelujah, to jump up and down, to fall down on your knees and praise God, to high-five the angel, to do something. That's not what we hear from Zechariah. He expresses doubt. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Right? I, I, I don't think you've got the right guy. I don't think this is going to happen. Right? He expresses disbelief. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. There is a mood swing in the inner room. Gabriel says, Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent by him to you. You won the lottery today. Not by chance. 
Right? You, were, you were here, just outside the Holy of Holies. I'm one of two angels that actually have a name because of my prominence, right? which, would, which Zechariah would know from Daniel and some and Jewish intertestamental literature. I have come to you today to say, the thing you've been asking for for the last 40 years is going to be answered. Right? Your prayers will be fulfilled. And you say this? Okay. You want proof? Here's proof. You will not be able to speak between now and the time that this is fulfilled. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Okay? So, meanwhile, back outside... The people are now praying, come on, old man, just get out here. We cannot keep this up. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. He was expected to come out to offer some sort of blessing and prayer. He can't do that. Clearly, someone else does that for him. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away disgrace among the people. So, at the end of the term, the end of the, of the week or two weeks that, uh, that they're assigned uh, to be there at the temple, Zechariah goes back to his village. He and Elizabeth uh, conceive a son. And Elizabeth remains in seclusion for five months, not letting anyone know, uh, giving thanks to God, uh, perhaps because her husband is silent, uh, but certainly giving thanks to God that he has answered her prayer. And she has to be amazed. Now, if you're looking for, um, if you're looking for something to do in light of this passage, if you're looking for some application for this amazing passage that we've been told, let me suggest that the principal one is to be encouraged. Because God is moving, right? God's hand is working. The things that he promised he was going to do, he's doing. And and that ought to give us great assurance that God will keep his word. God will always keep his plan. This passage is here principally to just show us how God is engineering our rescue. The one that Elizabeth is going to give birth to, John the Baptist, will be the one that will pave the way for the birth of Jesus Christ, who will be God's Son and our Savior, who will live and love and teach, who will be a baby and then uh, heal and will teach and then will be crucified in our place on the cross for our redemption and then will rise again and ascend to heaven. And, and all of that is the, is the most critical part. And we now see, as, as Jamie has already referenced, Aslan is on the move. The plan is unfolding. The silence is over. The first 
primary application of this passage is to just be assured God will carry out his plans. It may take a lot longer than we think. But God will do what he sets out to do. And we can rest assured that he is at work behind the scenes. If you're looking for something a little bit more specific than that, then let me suggest that there are two figures here that you might ask yourself, am I anything like either of them? One of them, Zechariah, is a little unnerving to relate to. Zechariah is a good guy. Zechariah is, is, is faithful. Zechariah is in many ways doing the right thing. But when Zechariah actually gets tapped on the shoulder and says, you're on, right? Game time. We're calling your play. Here we go. This is what you've been asking for. He's not ready. Right? His, his, his response is really one of doubt. He should not doubt. This is not an answer to prayer that goes unprecedented. Abraham and Sarah had a child in their old, old age. See the same thing with, with Rebecca and Hannah and Rachel. Right? There's, there is precedent for this. So it could be that you or me are like Zechariah. Not actually ready to go in if we get called in, in, in the big way. So that would be a little bit of a humbling reflection. The other way is actually remarkably wonderful. Elizabeth has felt shame for something that she has no reason to feel shame for. It was not her fault that she had not become a mother. She feels disgraced. You can imagine that perhaps in that little village, ugly things would be said. Right? Well, they act all high and mighty. They act all spiritual. They act all holy. But something's wrong. God does not show them any favor. You know, I mean, Zechariah never gets called to go into the, into the temple. And, and here is, here's Elizabeth, and she doesn't have any children. And, you know, they're not as good as they think they are. They're not as, they're not as spiritual as they act. And you can imagine that. You can imagine the frustration, the guilt, the shame that she feels. I want to say, right? God removes shame. Christ bore the shame of the cross for us. He doesn't just take away our sin. He takes away our shame. Perhaps you're feeling a little bit like Elizabeth. Nobody pays any attention to me. Nobody sees me. Nobody cares for me. Elizabeth is an old, barren, poor wife of an insignificant husband in a know-nothing part of the world. She's thinking, my life is small and nobody is paying attention. And the, the answer is, no, God is. God sees. God removes shame and disgrace. He takes away the lack of grace and gives us grace. I talked this week to somebody who told me I'm not coming to church this week because I feel too much shame. And and I know that everybody will look at me. And I said, no. 
Nobody is going to look at you. And he writes back and he goes, people will stare at me. And I said, no. For the record, people stare at me. They don't stare at you. And if by chance they stare at you, who cares? Show up. Worship God. Know that he takes away shame. He takes away sin and shame. He did that for Elizabeth. Zechariah, Elizabeth, maybe one of those you can relate to. The good news is Aslan is on the move. God's plan is unfolding. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this amazing um, revelation that we have been given in your word. Thank you for the way we see the fulfillment of your promises and can be uh, assured of the fulfillment of future promises. I pray for all of us that we would not be Zechariah, that we would not be called up short. And I pray especially for those who might be here feeling shame, feeling uh, overlooked, feeling looked down upon for some reason. I pray, Lord God, that uh, that uh, shame would go away and you would help them sense your unconditional, unmerited love and that Christ has taken not just sin but shame upon himself. In his name we pray. Amen.